Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, in today's Irish Tech News Podcast, I talk to Nigel Bailiff, the CEO of Aquacoms, who an Irish company, who the owner and operator of the Atlantic Cable, America, Europe Connect, and the Irish Sea Cable, Silicon Connect. Aquacoms um, is an Irish company that operates uh, subsea cable systems. Mm-hmm. We have a cable system which runs from Killala in County Mayo yeah. to Long Island in New York, and that was completed at the end of 2015, right. went live early 2016. And it's a very modern transatlantic fiber optic submarine cable system which carries in a massive capacity between the shores of West Island and uh, Long Island, New York. It, um, it's complemented by a cable system that we've had in service for about six years, which runs from Dublin to Holyhead in Wales, in Anglesey. And when you put those together with some terrestrial fiber optics, we have a network which stretches from New York, New Jersey, and all the way across the Atlantic on, on a protected path between Kilala and Dublin. From Dublin on a protected path across to the UK and then on two separate paths down to London. So we cover what, you know, the, what's called the traditional nylon New York and London um, capacity market for telecommunication providers, carriers, internet content players and, uh, and IP service companies. We announced a few weeks ago that we were also uh, planning to augment the network by building a second cable across the Irish Sea from just north of Dublin to Blackpool with a spur which goes into the Isle of Man. We then connect that with fibre, uh, terrestrial fibre to Newcastle in the northeast of England and then from Newcastle we would head straight across the North Sea to Esbjerg in Denmark. And the reason for that is the concentration of data centers in, in the Scandinavia and, and Denmark, where there's cheap available power, reasonable cost land, and it's cold, which is good for the, you know, not having to do too much air conditioning. So we announced that, say, back in the summer, we expect that to be completed by the end of 2019. And then we'll be able to service New Jersey and New York all the way over to, through Ireland, through the UK, into Northern Europe, and then obviously into m- Middle Europe via a connection from London towards Paris, Frankfurt, and beyond. That's very impressive. A lot of connection there. And where do you plan to go yeah, elsewhere? It, I mean, do you plan yeah. to go elsewhere in the, in, around the world or just in North America and Europe? Well, we started in the North American market, which is actually probably one of the toughest markets, is the Atlantic market. But we saw an opportunity with the fact that many of the cables that run across the Atlantic are already 17, 18, 
19 years old, and the design life of these cables is about 25 years. So it takes two or three years to build a cable. So we started back in 2015 with the implementation of our first Atlantic cable. Um, I, I, I would never say never to extensions um, elsewhere um, in the world, but that depends upon investors with a large pot of capital and looking very carefully at the route to understand its potential over the 20-year period that we tend to realise our investments. What we are doing is we're working together with other private cable owners, um, routes between North America and Brazil, and routes between uh, Europe and India, and where we can you know, get the right working partnership with people um, on those routes, we can start to be part of an alliance or a grouping of, of uh, providers that can supply services literally from you know, Brazil, South America, up to New Jersey, across the Atlantic, down onwards to India. And that, quite, that becomes a bit more powerful then when we can supply those bigger routes. We're investigating the other side of the Americas, so the Pacific Ocean and private cables on that side. And, you know, the, the, the role that we play is a very sort of distant and un, unknown role. We supply only to carriers and people who use telecommunications, um, you know, as their backbone. So carriers, internet content players, the, the OTTs, as they're called, all the various Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, etc. And But we don't actually supply services to consumers um, we, we let them do that and we, we don't supply to even large enterprises you know a number of people in our industry will supply directly to banks it's not because we don't want to it's because we think that there is a ecosystem of parties who can provide that layer of support and we partnered with them people like epsilon megaport packet fabric these are um, organizations which provide sla based services to financial institutions to enterprises based upon you know, sophisticated tools that they embed out in metro networks. Our desire is to implement cables in the sea and run them for a 20-25 year period and get our investment returned that way so that we partner with all of these other uh, organisations. And you said the cable last about 20-25 years. How often do you have to replace cables? essentially can be damaged by three main things. Uh, obviously, if you forget technical reliability, and the, the reason I do say forget technical reliability is that systems which are designed and developed into submarine cables are designed not to require maintenance over a full 25-year life. So the, the repeater, the optical pump, which goes every 80 kilometers on the cable at the bottom of the sea, is a reliability-engineered um, item. It's had 40, 50 years of development. It's a very straightforward and basic piece of equipment, and it's designed to have its longevity. So we don't expect to do any repairs on the cable based around equipment failing or components um, aging or failing to produce their required um, output. The main things that cause... Um, any repair and maintenance to be done on a submarine cable are what's called acts of external aggression. So that's um, a 
ship dropping its anchor in the wrong place, a fisherman being too aggressive and fishing over the cable itself, and potentially uh, you know geothermic type activities, so um, earthquakes and various things that mudslides that happen under the sea. Um, uh, you know, which are effectively acts of God. Now, if any of those things happen and the cable is cut, we actually have ships on standby in ports around the Atlantic Ocean with pieces of spare cable from our system and spare repeaters and amplifiers. And they would sail at 12 hours' notice out to where the cable is broken, recover the cable, splice in a new piece, put it back down on the seabed. It takes between five and ten days usually to do a repair like that um, in the uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. But that happens very rarely because these days we know an awful lot about the patterns of um, external aggression. So we know where to put the cable to avoid the undersea earthquake effects and to avoid places where ships are anchoring, obviously, and to try and work with... Um, fishermen and fisheries protection agencies to make sure the cable remains protected. We bury the cable underneath the seabed when we're in a fishing area. And the coast, just off the coast of Killala, is a, is a well-fished area, but we buried the cable there down to a depth of a metre below the seabed. So we take a very large vessel anchor yeah. um, to, uh, to disrupt the cable. And how secure is data that's been uh, transferred on, along these cables? Um, the, the system that we use, so we use an optical system from Siena, which actually has um, a world-leading wireline encryption technology built into it, such that Siena will guarantee you know, no, um, no ability to extract data once it's inside the Siena system. That's been blessed by various security agencies from both sides of the Atlantic whose traffic is transmitted on the cable. And under the sea, you know, the cable is essentially inaccessible. You can read lots of, you know, great uh, fiction stories about accessing the traffic on submarine cables. That kind of thing was possible during the days when there was electrical repeater technology and the systems were more electrical rather than optically um, based. But these days, it's impossible to be able to break into a system without the operator knowing because of the signal loss that would occur um, if anybody was trying to do that. So we have very secure building structure. We have very secure... Um, strong security processes about access to our buildings. The buildings are very nondescript. They don't look like something that will be carrying hundreds of terabits of capacity across the Atlantic. They just look like, you know, a, a boring nondescript building. With But it has very strong security um, down to only allowing <clears throat> manned and escorted, escorted manned access to them. Um, so they're, they're, they're very secure facilities connecting a very secure cable. Yeah, I can imagine, because a, a couple of years ago I went to visit a new data centre centre that was open in Dublin, and I couldn't find where it was because there was no sign telling me where it is. It was a very nondescript building. You wouldn't know what it was as you walked inside. Yeah, yeah. And that to me is probably the Actually, best way. the building also painted black in, Ke in Killala. Yeah. But uh, that was local planning regulations, not the security plan. But yeah. um, it's actually it's a black building in a dark place with 
So you almost can't find it even if you know where it is. Yeah, I guess if you're looking up online on satellite, you won't see it because it's black as well. Yeah. And how much data can you actually transfer along these cables, considering you've got a lot of cloud and data centers using your uh, using your product? Yes. Um, so the, there's a theoretical maximum, which um, it differs depending on the construction of cables. But there's a there's a theoretical maximum, a thing called the Shannon limit, and the Shannon limit for this cable is about 35 terabits per fiber pair we have six fiber pairs yeah. so you're in the region of um you know 200 terabits of capacity between uh, uh long island and uh, and, and killala now different parties use that capacity in different ways so yeah. we for example we extend out to london and to new york downtown data centers so we we get probably at the moment we're in the region of 130 um, times 100 gigabit services, 13 terabits roughly, in service um, on the, one of the cable pairs, one of the pairs in the cable. That's a lot of data. It is. And uh, I, I guess right, the, not really. And in fact, when our cable was built, yeah. we added 34 percent the whole transatlantic market. There are currently 14 cables on the Atlantic, several of which are quite old and will be due for retirement soon. But if you imagine our single cable added 34% to the market capability when it went live in uh, January 2016. That's very impressive that you managed to get a, a lot large chunk of the market there, just one cable. Yeah, technological advances of... You know, have moved along a pace with um, submarine cables, and because nothing had been built on the Atlantic for nearly seventeen years, there'd been a couple of leapfrogs of technology, which we were able to take uh, advantage of. Because I guess seventeen years ago, data centers weren't really what they are now, and cloud wasn't what it is now. So, as they've been used more, you had to have uh, cables so. that can handle that. Yeah, and I think if you if you go back then, it was all voice traffic, and you know, just moving over towards uh, you know private line data service traffic, and the internet was just forming. This was a nineteen ninety nine two thousand one, the classic dot com bubble time. Yeah. Um, what happened was there was an overbuild of capacity, so essentially seven companies looked at a market study and expected to win fifty percent market share, and uh, of course that you know that didn't that didn't work. So a lot of distressed capacity came onto the market. So companies went bankrupt, having just com completed submarine cable systems, and they were sold for cents on the dollar. So it, it disrupted the market economics of the Atlantic for quite a long period of time. It took a long time for that to work its way out, and for that excess capacity um, to be to be utilised to when it was it made sense to start to build again um, on that route. So, uh, and that's where we are now. It's uh, it's building again on on the um, on the Atlantic route. And I guess the next big thing would be maybe IoT device could be using your services as well, like smart cities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, all all of the you know we're agnostic to the type of data. 
we're just providing a relatively low latency. We don't specialize in low latency. We just happen to be reasonably low latency because we connect to the west of Ireland rather than you know, all the way through to mainland Europe. But um, we, um, you know, we are agnostic to the type of data, but you know, all of these drive, data drivers, things like IoT, things like smart cities, uh, are all going to, you know, even the, 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 the automated car um, technology needs to talk with a mothership somewhere, you know, yeah. back in the factory. And all of that data is carried over cables. You know, less than 0.1% of it is carried on satellite. So the fact that cables are needed both for the volumes of data and also the resilience. So you'll have four or five cables to try and provide the right resilience to any external aggression um, across the Atlantic. But that'll be it. You know, the whole of the Atlantic communications, every every Salesforce call back to a database, every every video of somebody's child's first birthday sent to a Facebook data center so that his grandmother in a different continent can watch it. All of that data has to flow over these cables. Um, I guess because because you've got more than one cable, you're able to manage this a lot, a lot more uh, easily now. Yeah, it does mean that we have um, a kind of an economy of scale. We specialize in this. You know, we, we don't we don't do like some companies that look to have terrestrial networks, you know, connecting all the buildings in the city and then connecting internationally. We simply focus and and concentrate on um, submarine cables. So we have a very specialist um, operations team. We have a very specialist um, team of, uh, of people who look after all the legalities and all the operations and maintenance charges for our cable stations and systems. And we've we specialise in this and actually provide it as a as a service to others. So some people who are looking to build submarine cables for themselves will come to us and ask us to manage them for them on an ongoing basis. And there are a couple of cables both here and actually in Asia, which um, we're looking at because we do the operations on a 24-7 basis. It's perfectly feasible for us to run a cable that happens to be, you know, halfway around the world. That's pretty interesting that you managed to diversify in what you do, but kept your core strengths as well. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a very specialist um, uh, industry, and you know we've got some people with some very good reputations, so we've managed to you know, continue our specialisation in helping others in the industry. And I guess basically, as the technology has improved over the years, you even managed to improve it such that that the cables you you've got can handle uh, more data than uh, than they maybe did twenty years ago. Yeah, absolutely. If you go back um, probably five years, we would probably have had a maximum of about five terabits per fiber pair. The sophisticated technology in in something called software decision forward error correction has meant that. Uh, we can now get, well, 13 or even 18 terabits. And the coding techniques that the suppliers use to squeeze the most information out of our optical bandwidth uh, is improving all the time because it's actually based upon a lot of mathematical research as opposed to you know pure optical research. So as people come up with new ways of coding the, 
the information, we end up with different um, different ways of, uh, of of utilizing that. And you roughly see, not quite a Moore's law, but you know, roughly every three four years, you get a doubling in the amount of capacity you're going to have available on the um, on a fiber optic cable system. Yeah, and I guess as technology improves, there might soon be a way of making the uh, of making the data smaller. So when it's go shared on, on your lines on your cables, it won't cause much bandwidth issues. You know, I've tried to follow that for most of my career, and there was a lot of work done on that in the 80s and 90s, the Huffman coding and all these things that came around with Group 4 facts and, and things like that, where you, and, and even the, the video codings, you know, H232 versus some of the other coding methodologies, gives you a much better um, spectral efficiency, I suppose you'd call it, you know, the, 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 you know pure... Uh, you know, efficiency of the transmission medium that you have. Now, the only thing I would say is you don't see much research being put into that. Everybody spends a lot of money on the apps and the usage on the cable. I've not seen many people spend a lot of money on trying to reduce um, transmission in an optical system. And it's almost because we're a little bit a victim of our own successes in that because the upgrade capability has worked so well, people are seeing the cost of the bandwidth to be the lesser of the evils. And actually, you know, you might as well assume when you're defining a new app or a new way of working that bandwidth will be able to grow to cope with the requirement. Um, and we're not hitting true sort of spectrum overload in, in any way yet, but I think we will do when it comes to 5G. That's, that's the one place where I think we'll see people start to turn around and spend money on making the communication channel more efficient by reducing the amount of data sent. But um, yeah, if you look at an iPhone, the iPhone now has a 4K camera, effectively. Yeah. So it can it can almost produce broadcast quality you know, broadcast quality um, video, and then you have to send that. So you need a huge kind of channel on your four G and potentially your five G. But in reality, do most of us really need a four K video camera on the end of our phone? Probably not. No, I, I guess uh, like people like maybe Sky News or CNN who are filming in the fields might not use an iPhone because it's it's easier to carry than a big camera. And they can do it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, many of these natural disasters, you know, everybody whips their phone out and starts filming them. That's actually, you know, pretty much broadcast quality. But if you think about the, the data stream, you know, it's a heck of a lot to start transmitting back via a five G network, and then just for the rest of the networks um, to get back to server sites. Yeah, I'm not trying to do myself out, but uh, you could. You could make that a lot more efficient, I guess. Yeah, and I guess when they bring out 8K, that's going to really, really cause problems for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Because I've seen 8K TVs at the moment, and when they so it's brought... Probably, it's probably... It's the access networks, I think, that will take the hit, as opposed to us. You know, we, yeah. we can almost kind of, you know, grow sufficiently 
um, it, it's it's whether or not the access networks and things like the you know the five G networks can can cope because they've got a bigger problem of actually that last mile piece. Yeah. That we can build a giant great pipeline of data. Um, they've got to build a giant pipe to everybody. And then they've got to make sure that everyone everyone can actually ration out and, and, and use that pipeline as well. Yeah, otherwise you just get congestion, which is like the old voice networks, you know? Yeah. Because I'm used to that. I'm used to years ago congestion uh, on broadband first came out, you got congestion quite a bit, and now it's that's changed. But still, at times you you wondering back when being at eight k and so forth onwards, how will they cope? Yeah, and, and I think it's it's it'll all, almost be a bit unfair because what will happen is, like most networks, you know, one party will take channel. You know, and it will usually be businesses, or it might not. In this case, it might be individuals. But you'll, you know, you'll start to see blocking of channels. And where we think that, oh, we've got good Wi-Fi at home, or you know, whatever. Actually, the limiting factor will then become the lying to the local exchange because somebody's hogging it. You know, maybe they're streaming a lot of videos, and the contention ratio is not set right. So I think the access networks are going to have a bigger, a bigger issue because we're all. It's not. It's not like it's one sector of society that's using more data. We're all doing it. Even yeah. my, you know, my eighty-six-year-old father is using data because he happens to have a smart TV. You know. Yeah. Anyway, thanks very much for that. Uh, for the enlightening talk, and uh, uh, I look forward to hearing hearing about you. You guys again soon, and uh, take it easy. Thanks so much, Nigel, for that. Rain lightning. All right. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much. And good luck in the future.